Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph on the topic, The Life of St. Edmund Campion. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Peter Joseph is the parish priest of St. Dominic's in Flemington, Sydney, and a holder of the Doctorate in Dogmatic Theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Well, today is 29th of June, Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, who both shed their blood in Rome, and therefore it's a most suitable day to commemorate St. Edmund Campion, because he died for the papacy and for the Catholic Church, and one of the great acts he did, one of the most famous things he did, was on the Feast of St. Peter and Paul, which I mentioned in the talk. And Pope Benedict XVI has declared from today, for the next 12 months, is a year of St. Paul. So this is a good way to begin the year of St. Paul. And while I've added, don't forget this little biography of St. Paul, written by Father Fernand Prat, P-R-A-T, Father Satch is going up to protect himself from heresy and all that. And uh, it's sold at the back of Belfield Church. There's a church that's close by here, and you might have seen it on the way in. It's only about ten or twenty dollars. Anyway, a great book would be written by Father Pra. I wrote the blurb on the back, that's the only thing I contributed to the book. But it's a great book written by a French Jesuit scholar about eighty years ago. Okay, now Saint Edmund Campion, fifteen forty to fifteen eighty one. So just after the Reformation had broken out and all sorts of things were happening in Europe and in England in particular. The first biography of him was written in 1620, or the first full biography, I've got a copy here, written uh, by Father Paul Bombino. There it is. The heading, The Life of Martyrdom of Edmund Campion of the Society of Jesus, second edition, much uh, enlarged and revised by the author, and printed at Mantua in 1620. So here it is, thanks to So. I can read it any time I want it. So, 300 pages. So that was Father Paul Bombino. And then Father Henry Moore, an English gentleman, also wrote The Life of Father Campion. And one of the shortest but uh, very readable lives written by a contemporary is Father Robert Parsons. It's spelled P-E-R, like persons, but it's pronounced Parsons. Father Robert Parsons went with Campion into England. And 13 years after Campion's death, he wrote a biography of Campion, which unfortunately never finished, but he got up to the last nine months, or let's say the last uh, yeah, nine months or so of Campion's life. So it's a quite a good, very readable biography. It's only appeared once in print, that was in 1877 in England, just a few weeks ago I was able to get hold of a copy by contacting the Jesuits at Farm Street, and I was able to contact the Jesuit brother who's a librarian there, so he sent me a photocopy, it's 120 pages, written in English. And one of the best known biographies of Edmund Campion in recent times, in the 20th century, Evelyn Waugh, great novelist, great Catholic novelist, he wrote a biography of Edmund Campion just called Edmund Campion. And the Jesuits provided all the materials for him to write the book. And if you haven't read it, I certainly suggest that you read it. Very readable, very well written, only about 200 pages. There's a few mistakes in it, but nothing, nothing serious. Okay, so here's the only image I have of the man. You don't have done good eyes to see that. But that was drawn a few years after his death. Shows him in a long gown, and sometimes you see him with a very high collar on a coat, or with a white thing round his neck in the style 
um, that they had in England. But in particular, this type of gown was the gown he wore in what they called the German style or the Bohemian style. Those who lived in the Czech Republic or, what, or Bohemia and Moravia used to have the style of the long gowns in the 1500s. So Edmund Campion dressed in the style of the scholars of his time uh, as a priest, as a Jesuit priest. And he's shown here holding his heart, which is on fire with the love of God. And he's carrying a palm, as in the book of Apocalypse. Those who carry the palm are those who've suffered martyrdom. And I remember reading one time about the symbolism of uh, Christian art and iconography. If, you, if the palm is upside down, I think it means in some way that uh, death came upon you by surprise or whatever. But if the palm is up, that means that you are ready for it, perfectly submitting to it, and so on. So he was perfectly ready for it, perfectly submitted to it. What's the symbolism of the palm? I don't know. But it means martyrdom. Why a palm? I don't know. Now he was born in London in 1540 when Henry VIII was still king in his 30th year. And that was the year, just five years after St. Thomas More had died, just a few years after the Reformation had entered England thanks to Henry VIII's schism, that was the year in which Henry VIII went on the rampage against the religious houses and persecuted them and despoiled them. So it was really the beginning of the major persecution of the church, sort of on a national scale, in England. And 40 years later, Edmund Camp himself was to be a victim of that. But he went to school at St. Paul's Grammar School, which is still going as far as I know, when he was about 9 or 10. And at those times in London, they used to have a regular competition amongst the grammar schools. And Edmund Campion, whenever there was a competition of learning or oratory, used to win the prize hands down. Everyone knew that he would win, and he always did. And so, after that school, uh, sorry, while he was still at St. Paul's School, Queen Mary, she was a Catholic queen, so for five years, after Henry VIII, after Edward or whoever, for five years, England had a Catholic Queen, Queen Mary, from 1553 to 1558. So, when Edward Campbell was from the age of 13 to the age of 18, England was ruled by a Catholic sovereign who did her utmost to crush heresy, restore the Catholic Church, brought England back into unity with the Holy See, and so on. So, when at the age of 13, Queen Mary made a solemn entrance into London, and she had to go by, had to pass by St. Paul's School, it was Campbell who was chosen to give the requisite speech. And I think that still is the custom, that if the Queen goes past St. Paul's school, someone from that, from that school will give, a, will give a, um, a little discourse. And I saw a picture of Queen Elizabeth II, so about 30 years ago, uh, at St. Paul's Grammar School, someone giving a little speech. Well, from St. Paul's school, Edmund was transferred to a school known as Christ's Hospital, or Christ Church. And that was a new school founded with confiscated church property. And from there he went to Oxford, to the College of St. John the Baptist. And so that's where he got a great education, continuing from his high standards of education in Latin and Greek and philosophy and theology. And that College of St. John the Baptist in Oxford was founded by Sir Thomas White, who was a very, very strong Catholic. So Edmund entered there in 1557, when he was about 17 years old, and he probably received a purse, thanks to friends of Sir Thomas White, to pay for his education, because his family were very moderate means and were not able to support an Oxford education. And as well, the Grocers' Company, and the Grocers' Company is still going, and we still have the archives of their records, the Grocers' Company 
gave him an, act, an annual exhibition of five pounds a year for his maintenance, which obviously would have covered probably the cost of books and maybe even his lodgings. So he received that for two years. And the condition was that the recipient should have begun the study of divinity after some years of studying arts, and he should be willing to preach at Paul's cross once a year. So this was the students who were training, therefore, for the priesthood, as, as Edmund Campy was. Well, 1558, there was a change of regime in England. So in other words, a year after Campion began at Oxford, everything in England was suddenly turned upside down. In November 1558, Cardinal Reginald Pole died. In the same month, Queen Mary died. Five years of Catholic rule suddenly came to an end. Elizabeth Tudor succeeded, Queen Elizabeth I. And within a few weeks, the new queen had shown her true colours and began to substitute the Anglican establishment for the Catholic Church. And so the change was immediately felt at Oxford. Oxford, for a long time, had been very resistant to the innovations of Protestantism. But within one year of Elizabeth's accession to the throne, only one college head was allowed to remain in office from the previous reign. And over the next decade, more than a hundred fellows, who were like the scholars and trustees of the college, colleges, a hundred fellows and senior members left Oxford for religious reasons. And a great proportion of them left in order to enter the priesthood and to work on the English mission by coming back to England secretly. So Campion, in order to continue with his studies, in order to take the Bachelor of Arts degree, as he wanted to, was compelled to take the oath, as everybody had to upon the conferral of a degree, the oath acknowledging the spiritual supremacy of the Queen of England. But she was the only ruler of the Church in England, the supreme ruler of the Church in England. In other words, a supremacy which outlawed the Pope, which outlawed any foreign ecclesiastical rule. So in 1564, when he was 24 therefore, he, being seduced by the university and by the promise of a good career and his success there, took that oath when he received the degree of the Bachelor of Arts. And at that time he had a host of friends and many things entangling him. And nevertheless, though he took the oath himself, he sometimes saved others from doing so if they had conscientious objections to it. And Father Robert Parsons says, I knew Campion at Oxford, and it was through him that the oath was not tendered to me when I took my Master of Arts degree. So Campion took the oath, but he really didn't want to take it. Parsons, on another occasion, did take that oath, and he said, shameful that I was, I took that abominable oath which I detested in my heart. Both of them were to repent of having taken such an oath to be reconciled with the Catholic Church and to return to England as priests. So Camden got the degree of Bachelor of Arts, he became a fellow of the college, and he was a lecturer in rhetoric. So he studied at Oxford for seven years, from 1557 to 1564, and then he entered into theology for the next six years. So 13 years of study at Oxford. So he studied Aristotle, positive theology, and the Fathers. He obtained the Master of Arts degree, but that was the last degree he would leave, he would receive before leaving St. John's a few years later without receiving actually the Bachelor of Divinity. So he got to the Master of Arts, but he didn't receive the Bachelor of Divinity, or theology, as they called it. Now, after he'd taken his Bachelor of, Bachelor's degree in 1564, he was such an outstanding figure at the age of 24, he had hosts of pupils who not only followed his teaching, but his example. 
And they imitated not only his phrases, but his walk, and his dress, and his mannerisms. It's a bit like somebody told me on Chaser's Walk, there were clones of Archbishop Hill going around following Archbishop Hill. <laughs> well, there were clones of Edmund Campion going around Oxford, dressing the way Campion did, talking the way he did, walking the way he did, all that type of thing. So, and they were known as the Campionists, these people, the Campionists, and they weren't, they weren't embarrassed to do so. I don't know what Campion thought of himself. Well, St. John's College, as I said, at that time, was a real nursery for Catholics. The founder was a devout Catholic, and it's significant that in Campion's first seven years there, up to 1564, so even six years into Queen Elizabeth's reign, Catholicism was tolerated at the college, although the presidents had to tread warily. And in 1566, Queen Elizabeth made a grandiose visit to the university, and Campion was one of the people who had to participate in a public debate in Latin, three on each side, a public debate conducted in Latin before the Queen. One of the questions was a philosophical question, the other one was a scientific question. They deliberately chose questions that would not bring in theology or religion or interpretation of the Bible or any such thing, just make it philosophical and scientific. Well, the Queen heard Campion speak, she was so impressed by his eloquence that to the man who was next to her, Lord Robert Dudley, whom people at that time thought would one day marry the Queen, she said to him, I think he would be a good man for you to patronise. So Dudley, who later became the Earl of Leicester, and was close to the Queen for the rest of his life, showed Campion great kindness and gave him a lot of patronage. And when, some years later, Campion wrote A History of Ireland, he publicly dedicated the book to the Earl of Leicester and publicly acknowledged the Earl's kindness to him. Elizabeth's Secretary of State, Sir William Cecil, Lord Burley as he came to be called, also took great interest in Campion's success. And four years afterwards, when Campion left England, Lord Cecil said to someone, it's a very great pity to see a so notable man leave his country, for indeed he was one of the diamonds of England. Another man called him the Flower of Oxford. So he was the most popular man in Oxford, a great scholar, a great intellect, a great speaker, a man of many friends, but he did not reside long enough to take the doctoral degree. Why not? Because there was in his mind, says Father Parsons, a great struggle of conscience going on. His conscience disapproved of his own behaviour. Parsons says, he was always a sound Catholic in his heart, and he utterly condemned all the form and substance of the Queen and Council's new religion. And yet, the sugared words of the great folks, especially of the Queen, joined with hopes of speedy and great performance, so enticed him that he knew not which way to turn. He hearkened, as Parson says, to both sides inwardly. And he was looked to see if he could find sufficient reasons to allow his conscience to follow in peace the course to which his worldly interests so strongly inclined him. Parson says he took refuge in studying the fathers of the church, those holy and learned ecclesiastical writers of the first six centuries. And what Parson says is that whenever Campion spent time with the Protestants, hearing them speak, experiencing their good fellowship and their conversation and so on, or reading their books or hearing their sermons. He was not troubled. But as soon as he read some work of the fathers of the church for one hour, that wound of conscience became green again. And whenever he heard the fathers speak, he thought, they were speaking the controversies of our time, and they were not speaking the language and the doctrine of Protestantism. Years later, Cameron was to write a book called 
Deitchem Ratziolis, ten reasons. And in reason number five, he told a story which occurred at the time at Oxford. And he said this, which must have embarrassed the man he was talking about. Camden said, Once also I familiarly questioned Toby Matthew, now your leading Protestant preacher, whom I love for his good accomplishments and virtue, and I asked him to answer honestly how a man who read the Fathers assiduously could take the Protestant side which he supported. Toby Matthew answered me, If I believed them as well as read them, I could not. Camden comment, this is a perfectly true statement, and I do not suppose that he thinks any differently now. And his point was that you Protestants, although you cite the fathers of the church, you don't follow the fathers of the church. Camden became good friends, very close friends, with a man called Richard Cheney, the Bishop of Gloucester. And he would continually visit him, read in his study, borrow books from his library, enjoy his familiarity, share the old man's sorrows, and listen to his complaints at the calumnies that assailed him. Because Cheney, Bishop of Gloucester, was somewhat like a Anglo-Catholic, or, you know, a high church Anglican, who wanted to hold on to the traditions of the Church of England, and the fathers of the church, and, and the teachings of history, and so on. But he, he didn't want union with the papacy, and so on. And he didn't want Puritanism, and radical Protestantism. He didn't want to destroy images, and statues, and icons. He didn't want to... He didn't want to abolish vestments and ceremonial and feasts of the saints and so on, as many of the other more radical Protestants wanted to do. He wanted to follow this midway course between Catholicism and Protestantism. And Cheney told Campion, follow the road of the church councils and the fathers. Avoid either extreme. Now Campion saw the inconsistency of this advice. And yet, in a way, he allowed, him, he allowed himself to be persuaded for a time. At about 1567, so about the age of 27, he was ordained an Anglican deacon, so as to be able to receive an income and to be able to preach publicly. Not thinking, as he afterwards said, that the matter had been as odious and abominable as it was. Parsons records that as soon as he was ordained, troubles began to beset him. Inwardly, says Parsons, he took a remorse of conscience and detestation of mind. And later, Camden would refer to his Anglican diaconate as the mark of the beast. He called his reception of holy orders in the established church, my disorders. He called it this infamous character and profane mark of ministry. But he was not too happy about it, to put it simply. Then he ran into trouble from the grocer's company. Because once he was ordained a deacon, he was meant to preach. But being so ashamed of having received a diaconate, and never being a convinced Anglican or member of the established church, he didn't preach. And the grocer's company sent word to him that they expected him to preach before a certain time. He put them off once and twice, and then the third time he knew it was going to be impossible to put them off anymore. Because they gave him an order that by a particular date, he must preach at Paul's Cross in London, or else his bursary would cease. So in the end, Campion went to meet them and said, I'm sorry, I cannot preach, and the bursary was over. Campion was great friends with a man called Gregory Martin. And it was at those times at Oxford a requirement for a student at a certain point in his studies to accept the holy order of priesthood. And Campion was coming due, so to speak, for the order of priesthood, meaning priesthood in the Anglican Church. Because the Anglican Church at this stage was still following outwardly 
many ceremonies and sacraments and feasts of the Catholic Church. Later on, it would become more and more Protestant, more and more away from Catholic ceremonial and ritual and tradition. But back then, they were still retaining many Catholic doctrines and uh, outward ceremonies. So he was probably due to be ordained a priest by about 1569, but he managed to evade it by holding the lectureship in rhetoric. Because for some reason, if you were a lecturer in, le- in rhetoric, you would dispense from the time being from entering upon the priesthood. Parson says, there existed then in his stricken mind a bitter civil war, while different opinions about either concealing or professing the Catholic religion fought it out. Well, his dearest friend was Gregory Martin. And Gregory Martin and Edmund Campion were college companions in Oxford for all those 13 years. They had their meals together, their books together, their ideas in common. They'd studied under the same masters. They had loved the same friends. And Gregory Martin, like Campion, was a man of mark. He was a man, they said, of extraordinary modesty and moderation. He was skilled in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He was a poet. They called him the honour and glory of St. John's College. Well, Gregory Martin fled overseas to Douai in France and became a Catholic and became a priest. And before he left, he wrote to Campion to warn him against the ambition that was leading him astray into the broad path where so many great wits had perished in those evil days. Father Gregory Martin is best known today as the main translator of the Latin Vulgar Bible into English, which became known as the Douay-Rheens version, because he did all that work at Douay. First they published the New Testament, then some years later, when they had enough money, they published the Old Testament. So on the Feast of St. Michael, 29th of September, 1570, at the age of 30, Camden left Oxford, never to return to it again. He went to Ireland, and the plan was originally that he would lecture at the soon-to-be-created University of Dublin. But in the end, that university did not get created for some time. So Camden had to account for his absence from England. He spent, therefore, ten weeks at this time, early 1571, to writing a history of Ireland. A very eloquent work, he wrote in English, but not outstanding as a work of history. But interesting because of his beautiful style. And the work was first published in Hollingshed's Chronicles in 1577. Hollingshed, if you've ever heard the name Hollingshed, you'll always see him when you study Shakespeare. Because Hollingshed, as a chronicler and a historian and an analyst, was always used by Shakespeare as a historical source for his plays about the kings and queens of England. But Shakespeare used Hollingshed with as much care and accuracy as modern films. In other words, use it as the basis for a story. But don't try and study English history by studying Shakespeare. For example, a priest I know called Father Columba Macbeth Green says to me, Macbeth killed Duncan, not in his bed, not when Duncan was a guest in his house, but in battle, fair and square. And Macbeth was a good Catholic king, in fact, so peaceful was the kingdom of Scotland under his time, he was able to go to Rome and make a pilgrimage and come back again, and everything was still in order. So Shakespeare has maligned Macbeth. Good drama, bad history. But Campion was not allowed to finish his history of Ireland in peace. He started to live openly as a Catholic. And the Lord Chancellor and the other High Commissioners of Ireland tried to arrest him, but he eluded them with the help and the warnings of different friends. 
So he had to go into hiding and then eventually decided he may as well return to England. What had happened to suddenly provoke this pursuit of Campion and many other people? In 1570, Pope Pius V issued the bull, Regnans in Excelsis, reigning in heaven. And in this bull, Pope Pius V excommunicated Queen Elizabeth, deposed her from her throne, and forbade anyone to obey her. Okay, excommunication, well merited, good idea. <laughs> but deposing her from her throne was beyond what even many Catholic theologians said the Pope had the power to do, and to decree that no one could obey her when there was no other sovereign running the country was just a disaster. In other words, it made Catholics ipso facto treasonous, disloyal to the crown, not recognising authority of the sovereign. So even close advisers of the Pope and other sovereigns, even at the time and before and after, advised the Pope that it was not a good idea to make Catholics uh, released from any obedience to Queen Elizabeth when they had no practical alternative. Anyway, Cameron returned to England. This is 1571. And on his flight from Dublin, he called himself Mr. Patrick, out of the to St. Patrick, patron of Ireland. As soon as he got back to England, he attended the trial, of, the trial in Westminster Hall of Dr. John Story. Dr. John Story was a layman. He'd been a secretary to the Catholic Bishop, Bishop Bonner who had served under Queen Mary. And so Dr. John Story played a prominent part in Queen Mary's restoration of Catholicism and persecution of Protestantism. Anyway, Story, to cut a long story short, left England, moved to the Vane in modern Belgium with his wife and his four young children dependent upon him, besides nephews and nieces, and to support himself when there was no one else willing to do the job he accepted the office of Inquisitor to search English ships entering or leaving the port of Antwerp for contraband prints, namely books of heresy. Because Catholic Belgium did not want heretical books coming in from England. Remember, of course, that many heretical books in those days and Catholic books were written in Latin. Latin was a universal, it was an international language, and therefore it didn't write who wrote what. Anybody of any European education could understand it. So he undertook this job. So he became an inspector of ships to look for any contraband tricks which would be removed or whatever. Well, in August 1570, the English heretics set him up. They sent a ship with contraband tricks on it. While he was searching their ship, they seized him, put him in a box, fastened the hatch upon him and carried him off to England. By this time he was not even a subject of England, he became a subject of Spain. He was brought to London, imprisoned in the Tower, frequently racked, and he was charged with treason. And this saintly martyr bore his tortures with fortitude, and he asserted over and over he's innocent of the charges. He had never participated in any attempt to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. And he refused, he said, to make any further plea on the grounds that he was a Spanish subject, and consequently his judges had no jurisdiction. So he was a man kidnapped and brought to another country to, of which he was no longer a citizen and put on trial and in the end, 1st of June 1571, he was hung, drawn and quartered, which means he was hung up, cut down before he died, chopped in four pieces. Was this at Tyburn? At Tyburn, 1886. So just after the trial, Campion had left. Campion did not hang around for his execution, but he certainly would have heard that the man was executed. 
So that was probably enough to make Camden realise there's no possibility of religious freedom in England at this time. There's no probability of professing the faith and certainly no possibility of becoming a Catholic priest. So he decided to escape from England, but not to avoid the danger permanently, but to prepare himself to meet it more usefully, namely to finish and to study theology and to become a priest. And for this he went to Douai in France, modern France. So over in Douai, where he went in 1571, there was a seminary founded by Dr. William Allen to train young men for the priesthood, as well as to give them a good education. Not everyone there was trained to be a priest, but the majority were. So Campion spent about a year and a half at Douai. He got his degree of Bachelor of Theology, and he was reunited there with his old friend Gregory Martin, who was a priest on the staff. Back in England, Cheney, his old friend, was falling into disgrace. Cheney, who wanted to follow this middle course between Protestantism and Catholicism, he was rejected by Catholics, of course, because he was an Anglican bishop, and he was being rejected by Anglicans because he was too Catholic in his beliefs. So he was excommunicated, and he died a few, a few years later, a very sad man, because he was neither, you know, neither Anglican nor Catholic. Well, Camden wrote him a letter on All Saints Day 1571 from Douay, with all the ardour of a future saint and martyr to a compromiser. Here's what he wrote, or some of what he wrote. I won't read the whole thing, but some extracts to give you an idea of how beautifully he wrote, and with what ardour. So he wrote to Cheney saying to him, shamefully, I should have brought this up with you when I was with you, and I didn't. And he says to him, I beg you, by your own natural goodness, by my tears, even by the pierced side of Christ, so listen to me. There is no end nor measure to my thinking of you, and I never think of you without being horribly ashamed. Listen, I beseech you, listen to a few words. You are sixty years old, more or less of uncertain health, of weakened body, the hatred of heretics, the pity of Catholics, the talk of the people, the sorrow of your friends, the joke of your enemies. Against your conscience you falsely usurp the name of a bishop. By your silence you advance a pestilential sect which you love not, stricken with anathema, cut off from the body into which alone the graces of Christ flow, you are deprived of the benefit of all prayers, sacrifices and sacraments. Who do you think yourself to be? What do you expect? What is your life? Wherein lies your hope? In the heretics who hate you and abuse you so roundly? Is your hope that because of all the heresiarchs you are the least crazy? Because you confess the living presence of Christ on the altar and the freedom of man's will? Because you persecute no Catholics in your diocese? Because you are hospitable to your townspeople and to good men? Because you do not plunder your palace and lands as your brethren do? Surely these things would avail much if you return to the bosom of the church. If you suffer even the smallest persecution in common with those of the household of the faith, or join your prayers with theirs. But now, whilst you are a stranger and an enemy, whilst like a base deserter you fight under an alien flag, it is in vain to attempt to cover your crimes with the cloak of virtues. You shall gain nothing, except perhaps to be tortured somewhat less horribly in the everlasting fire than Judas or Luther or Zwingli. In vain do you defend the religion of Catholics if you uphold only that which you like and cut off all that seems not right in your eyes. There is but one plain known road, not enclosed by your boundaries or mine, not by pride of judgment, 
but by the severe laws of humility and obedience. When you wander from this, you are lost. You must be altogether within the house of God, within the walls of salvation, to be sound and safe from all injury. If you wander and walk abroad ever so little, if you carelessly thrust hand or foot out of the ship, if you stir up ever so small a mutiny in the crew, you shall be thrust forth. The door is shut, <coughs> the ocean roars, you are undone. He who gathers not with me, says the Saviour, scatters. Jerome explains, he who is not Christ's is antichrist's. Spare yourself, be merciful to your soul, spare my grief. Your ship is wrecked, your merchandise lost. Nevertheless, seize the plank of penance and come even naked to the port of the church. Fear not, but that Christ will preserve you with his hand, run to meet you, kiss you, and put on you the white garment. Saints and angels will sing for joy. Take no thought for your life. He will take thought for you who gives their beasts their food and feeds the young ravens that call upon him. During the time that Tavian spent at Dewey, he completed his course of theology and obtained the degree of Bachelor of Theology. But he didn't stay long enough to receive the licentiate of theology. By the way, on 13th of August, 1571, he bought for himself a copy in three volumes of the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas. It has many notes in his own hand and a little note in the margin at the point where St. Thomas discusses martyrdom. It was lost for a long time. It was rediscovered in 1887. It's now kept in London. So Cambridge received the minor orders of lector, porter, exorcist, acolyte, and also subdeacon. He was also employed as a professor in the college. And one of his students was Cuthbert Maine, who went back to England and became the proto-martyr of the English priests, of those who were trained abroad. So after one and a half to two years of doing, Cambrian decided to break with the world entirely, to make a pilgrimage to the tombs of the apostles Peter and Paul at Rome, and with their help to become a Jesuit. So April 1573, he arrived in Rome. He was received into the Society of Jesus, and as of course there was no English province, he was assigned to the Austrian province. And as a member of the Austrian province, he did his novitiate in Prague, in Bohemia, modern Czech Republic, and then was continued in a place called Brun, which is 125 miles away. And when he entered the novitiate at that place, he wrote in his own handwriting, in the album of the novitiate, a few particulars about himself, his family, and his education. This is what he wrote. My name is Edmund Campbell, an Englishman of London, in my 34th year, born of a legitimate marriage and Christian parents of long standing, and departed in the Catholic faith, we hope. My father's name was Edmund, a citizen and bookseller of medium fortune. I have two brothers and one sister. The older brother is married and serves in the army, as I hear. The younger one is a student. I have the deliberate intention of living and dying in this society of Jesus, and this I now decide, if I've not decided before, by no one's coercion, but by my own choice. In Prague, 
when he returned there, Campion studied at the Clementina, which was the Jesuit College, and he was also made Professor of Rhetoric. He was always the perfect choice of Professor of Rhetoric because he was such a great orator. He also became a playwright, and he wrote three plays, only one of which survives. He wrote a play on the subject of King Saul, which lasted six hours, and by the command of the Emperor of Bohemia was repeated the next day. In the same year he wrote a play on the sacrifice of Abraham. And in 1578 he put on the drama which was celebrated at the time on St. Ambrose and the Emperor Theodosius, talking about Ambrose and his conflicts with the Emperor, who of course wanted to, in a way, control the church. Well that third play called Ambrosia is the only one which survives, the other two have been lost. 1578, Cambrian was ordained deacon, and priest by the Archbishop of Prague. So at the age of 38, unusually late for that time, on the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 8th of September, 1578, he said Mass for the first time. Well, that year, 1578, was the last year of his quiet life at Prague. Dr. Alan Adouet, who had known Campion when Campion had studied there for a year and a half to two years, went to Rome, and he met with the Jesuit general and with the Pope. <coughs> he organized an English college in Rome for seminarians to study, so from Rome they could go back to England and minister secretly. At the same time, Dr. Allen, a priest, wanted to obtain the assistance of the Jesuits for the English mission, because there were Jesuits to whom was entrusted the English college, and he advised that it would be a good thing if they not only taught the students, but gave good example by participating in the English mission themselves. So after much deliberation, it was determined that two Jesuit priests, Father Parsons and Father Campion, would be sent to England. Alan was delighted. As soon as he was told that, he wrote to Campion to tell him himself. He wrote this letter, My father, brother, son, Edmund Campion, but you I must use every expression of the tenderest ties of love. Since the general of your order, who to you is Christ himself, calls you from Prague to Rome, and thence to our own England, since your brethren after the flesh call upon you, for though you hear not their words, God has heard their prayers. I, who am so closely connected with them, with you, and with our common country, both in the world and in the Lord, must not be the only one to keep silence when I should be first to desire you, to call you, to cry to you. Make all haste and come, my dearest Campion. You have done enough at Prague towards remedying the evils that our countrymen inflicted upon Bohemia, talking about Wycliffe. Wycliffe was an English heretic from the 14th century whose errors had entered into Bohemia. It will be dutiful, religious and Christian in you to devote the rest of your life and some part of your extraordinary gifts to our beloved country, which has the greatest need of your labours in Christ. The night before Campion received this letter telling him that he was being summoned to Rome and from Rome to go to England, a priest from Silesia, which is either part of Germany or Poland, that's gone back and forth over the century, Father James Gore, reputed to have ecstasies, wrote over Campion's cell, Father Edmund Campion, master. He got into trouble from his superior, because really, as we tell little children, you should not draw on the walls. <laughs> but it must have been a bad habit in that college, because another priest, Father John Vitsumbius, had previously painted a palm with a garland of roses and lilies, the insignia of virginity and martyrdom, 
on the wall of Kevin's room, just above where his head usually rested. I don't know if he got into trouble. What was their motivation? They prophetic intuition. They were declaring the future. They were declaring martyrdom, which which this was even before he'd been summoned to leave Pride. So by prophetic insight and intuition, and uh, Father Gaul, when his superior gave him a penance to do for writing on the walls, he said, but I, I felt the urge to do it. <laughs> yeah, lots of kids do So Cambrian left Prague, March 1580, and he arrived in Rome on Holy Saturday. So Holy Saturday 1580, he's in Rome. He meets up with Father Parsons, visits the English college, visits the tombs of the saints, might well have met St. Philip Neri, because St. Philip Neri used to love the priests who were studying at the English college and going to Rome, and used to embrace them before they would set off for their mission. And they said that he would embrace most tenderly and longest those who in the end ended up being martyrs. And he used to greet them when he saw them in the street, Salvete Flores Martyrum, Hail Flowers of the Martyrs, the opening line of a, of a hymn that the church has for martyrs. So the Jesuit general, Father Mercurian, a Belgian Jesuit, drew up rules of conduct for the two Jesuit priests going to England. And the object, as he announced it, was to preserve and advance the Catholic faith in England, but by, above all, bringing back whoever has strayed from it through ignorance or at the instigation of others. So the conversion of Protestants was not the aim of the mission. It was too dangerous to try to meet with Protestants. It was too dangerous to go around challenging them to debates or ministering publicly. So Catholics, lapsed Catholics, and Catholics who went to the Protestant church, they were known as church papists. In other words, they go to church, Anglican church, but they're papists, really. Papists was the term used for Catholics. So these were the object of the priest's care. And Father McEwen, in his instructions, explained to them, with heretics, they should have no direct dealings. If necessity forces them to debate with heretics, they should refrain from biting and intemperate words and give evidence of their modesty and charity no less than of their learning, and let them make use of solid arguments in preference to bitter ranting. Except for the strongest reasons, he told them, you must never let it be publicly known that you are priests or Jesuits. And again, the spiritual nature of the mission was again emphasised. They are not to mix themselves in affairs of state, nor to write to Rome or from England about political matters, nor to speak against the Queen, nor to allow others to do so in their presence. Therefore, never could any Jesuit be accused of sedition in thought, word or deed. He was not to engage in political matters, but purely to minister to Catholics. So Father Robert Parsons and Cambrian were sent off from Rome to England. Parsons was born of Catholic parents, and as I said, he strayed in a way for the sake of his, his uh, university career, but in his heart he really had been a Catholic. He was educated at Oxford, but he never was ordained an Anglican deacon. He left Oxford before doing so. He intended to study medicine, and while visiting Louvain, he met Father William Good, a Jesuit priest who made him do the 30-day retreat of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the spiritual exercises. And that was a turning point in Parsons' life. Overcoming his years of hesitation, he reverted to the Catholic Church, committed himself fully to Christ, followed a priestly vocation, and went to Rome where he was received into the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. 
So a band, of, a band of 15 left Rome to go to England by foot. So they went to Flanders eventually in modern day Belgium and Parsons crossed over from Flanders to Dover. So the first man of the band entered England. Parsons was wearing the disguise of a captain's uniform of buff, trimmed with gold lace with hat and feather to match. And Campion wrote to the general, you would never guess there was any piety or virtue under that gaul gaudy disguise in which he disguised himself. So Parsons got to England, he went to Southwark, which is south of the Thames, and he tried to find a Catholic where he could lodge, but he couldn't find any. He didn't know where anybody lived. But he thought, I'm sure to find plenty of them in prison, because plenty were in prison for their faith. So he went to the Marshalsea prison, went to the reception desk, <coughs> rang the bell, ding dong, yes. Uh, I'm looking for Mr. Thomas Pound, Esquire. Ah, oh, yes, well that's room 52, let me take it to him. So he went and saw Mr. Thomas Pound. And Mr. Thomas Pound was actually, in a certain sense, secretly a Jesuit, although he'd never taken vows, and he was never ordained, but he was like a novice for the Jesuits. Now, that might seem a strange procedure to go to prison when you're in need, to might find some things that might help you out. So why on earth did you do that? Well, I came across a book by an English historian Reynolds, who explains that, he said, the prison system, if it can be called such of Elizabethan times, was both more harsh and more humane than ours. The prisons were not run by the state, but they were leased to jailers who were out to get as much return on their investments as possible. So prisoners who had funds were almost like paying guests, and they were even allowed out on occasions. But prisoners without money or friends were almost starved and kept in foul conditions. So one of the great demands of Catholics for years to come was to provide funds for the support of their fellow Catholics who were in jail, who didn't have the money to pay the jailer for a decent diet. And some of them ended up dying from disease or malnutrition. But Pound, he had plenty of resources, so when he wanted to go out or needed to go out to do something for the Catholic Church, he paid the jailer, he let him out, and he promised to be back tomorrow morning, you know, and he would. So, Reynolds said Catholics in, in these jails could lead a club-like life, and sometimes priests could say mass, which outsiders for a fee paid to the caretaker could attend. So it was a bizarre situation. The Catholic Church is legal, priests and, and masses and all that are completely legal, but some of the Catholic activity is going on in jail. Because everyone knows jails are safe, people don't rush into jails, police don't raid jails, they're in there already, they don't have to catch criminals there, they're in there, and so on. So, Parsons was conducted to the room of Thomas Pound. Thomas Pound welcomed him and said, Welcome, Father Parsons, we've been waiting for you. Parsons, how did you know I was coming? Oh, we, we got work. And we've been, and he's camping here? No, no, Campion, he told him, Campion is still in Dover. So, his Campion is still at um, St. Omer in Flanders. Pray for him that he get over here, because I need someone to meet him. So Parsons had to begin the network of contacts for priests coming over, so that they wouldn't like himself arrive in London and think, what do I do now, where do I go? So, Campion, on the 24th of June, 1580, got a boat from Calais, and he reached Dover before daylight, 20th of June, 1580. Now the story goes that the evening's entertainment on the ship was the World War II film, The White Cliffs of Dover. <laughs> and the Campion, the, the, there's a rumour that Campion led the passengers who sing, in singing There'll be blue skies over the white cliffs of Dover 
anyway, historically and chronologically, that proposition can't hardly be maintained. So the mission begins. So Campion, who was with Brother Ralph Emerson, made all haste to London. And when they got to London, they were on a boat going up the Thames. And a man called Thomas Jay, who was one of the Catholic club of priest helpers, it was this club of laymen who used to give help to the priest, giving disguises, giving clothes, giving money, giving a horse, giving a carriage if necessary. One of the Jesuits later on used to go around as a, as a real silver man with a silver spoon in his mouth. Big carriage, horses, servants, everything. This Jesuit used to go around. And because he was so ostentatious, no one dared even think that he might actually be a Catholic priest. But he was. That was, that was his disguise. Total ostentation. But Campion and Parsons and Emerson were much more cautious. So this man, Thomas Jay, having heard Campion described, and having heard that Brother Ralph Emerson was a very short man, when he saw this boat coming up and seeing these two men together, he thought, I bet that's, I bet those, that's those two. So he went up to the boat and said, Mr. Edmonds, give me your hand. I'm here for you to take you to your friends. So Campion thought, well, there's nothing to do but to trust this guy. So the man led him to Chancery Lane in London, and there they were given new clothes, Captain was dressed like a gentleman, and given a horse. Parsons was away from London at the time, but it was too dangerous to stay around in London for too long. So he was sent word the Captain's arrived, come to London. But in the meantime, 29th of June, the feast of St. Peter and Paul, today's feast, 1580, 227, 427 years ago, Campion said Mass for the first time in England. There was no public place that they could use. There was no house big enough for all those who wanted to attend. So Lord Paget hired for them the great hall of a house near Smithfield. And the usual servants and porters were replaced by gentlemen of worship and honour. And they were the watchmen who were to guard the way to make sure that no one would surprise them when Mass was being said. Campion preached on the Gospel. And he taught for his text, St. Peter's Confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord's answer, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church. So Campion animated them to confession, the true confession of Christ in that faith and religion of his, which he first sent to England when it was converted from paganism. And the effect of his whole sermon was to draw forth much devotion, and to plant in all that heard him great courage and fortitude. Now Campion was rejoined by Parsons, and they found that London was swarming with spies. So from one day to the next, they would move lodging, change name, change clothing, change their disguise, everything. It was too dangerous to be in more than one place for 24 hours. So in the end, Campion and Parsons said, we must have a meeting and work out our common policy, and when we are to meet up again, and where we are to go. So they went to a place at Hoxton, outside of London, at the house of a gentleman, and so on July 19, they were all ready to leave Hoxton and go off. Parsons was going to minister closer to London, while Camping was to go to the north. And just before they were about to take off, who should arrive but Mr. Thomas Powell? He was out for the day, you know, paid, paid the keeper the money, and he went to them, because he knew where they were, through the Catholic context, and he said to them, You've come to England for a spiritual religious purpose. If you are caught, the government will put out rumours that you were caught with plans to overthrow the Queen and her government, with plans to assassinate the Queen. 
The government will spread lies, the most disgraceful and shameful lies about you. You must write now a declaration of purpose. Keep one on yourself and give someone, give another copy to someone trustworthy to be released in the event of your capture and your inability to communicate with the outside world. That way Catholics will know that what is being said about them is a lie and even Protestants will know it is untrue. So Campion and Parsons thought that's a good idea. So they discussed together what they should put in this Declaration of Purpose, 19th of July, 1580. Campion, in half an hour, sat down and wrote his Declaration of Purpose. It became known as Campion's Challenge, or Campion's Brag, the brag of Campion. So in half an hour, he sat down and wrote it. This is what he wrote. It was addressed to the Majesties of her Lord's Privy Council. He says, Right Honourable, whereas I have come out of Germany and Bohemia, being sent by my, my superiors and adventured myself into this noble realm, my dear country, for the glory of God and benefit of souls, I thought it likely enough that in this busy, watchful and suspicious world I should either sooner or later be intercepted and stopped at my course. Wherefore, providing for all events and uncertain what shall become of me when God shall perhaps deliver my body into durance, I suppose it needful to put this writing in a readiness desiring your good lordship to give it the reading, for to know my cause. This doing, I trust I shall leave you some labour. For that which otherwise you must have sought for by practice of wit, I do now lay into your hands by plain confession. 1. I confess that I am, albeit unworthy, a priest of the Catholic Church, and through the great mercy of God bowed now these eight years into the religion of the Society of Jesus. Hereby I have taken upon me a special kind of warfare under the banner of obedience and completely resigned all my interest or possibility of wealth, honour, pleasure and other worldly felicity. Two, that the voice of our Father General, which is to me a warrant from heaven and an oracle of Christ, I took my voyage from Prague to Rome, where our said General Father is always resident, and from Rome to England as I might and would have done joyously into any part of Christendom or heathen territory have I been there to assign. Three, my charge is of free cost to preach the gospel, to minister the sacraments, to instruct the simple, to reform sinners, to confute errors, in brief, to cry alarm spiritual against foul vice and proud ignorance wherewith many my dear countrymen are abused. Four, I never had mind and am strictly forbidden by our Father that sent me to deal in any respect with matter of state or policy of this realm as things which pertain not to my vocation and from which I do gladly restrain and sequester my thoughts. Five, I do ask to the glory of God with all humility three sorts of quiet audiences. The first, before your honours, where I will, I will discourse of religion so far as it toucheth the commonwealth and your nobilities. The second, where I make more account, before the doctors and masters and chosen men of both universities, Oxford and Cambridge, wherein I undertake to avow the faith of our Catholic Church by truths innumerable, scriptures, councils, fathers, history, natural and moral reasons. And the third, before the lawyers, spiritual and temporal, wherein I will justify the said faith by the common wisdom of the laws that we get in force and practice. Six, 
I would be loath to speak anything that might sound of any insolent brag or challenge, especially being now as a dead man to this world, unwilling to put my head under every man's foot and to kiss the ground they tread upon. Yet have I such a courage in avouching the majesty of Jesus my King, and such assurance in his gracious favour and in my quarrel, and my evidence so impregnable, and because I know that no one Protestant or all the Protestants living, nor any sect of our adversaries, can maintain their doctrine in disputation, I am to sue most humbly and instantly for the combat with all and every of them, and the most principal that may be found, protesting that in this trial, the better furnished they come, the better welcome they shall be. 7. And because it has pleased God to enrich the Queen, my Sovereign Lady, with notable gifts of nature, learning and princely education, I do verily trust that if Her Highness would vouchsafe a royal person and good attention to such a conference as I have motioned, or to a few sermons which in her or your hearing I am to utter, such manifest and fair light by good method and plain dealing may be cast upon these controversies, that possibly her zeal of truth and love of her people shall incline her noble grace to disfavour some proceedings hurtful to the realm, and procure towards us oppressed more equity. 8. Moreover, I doubt not that you, Her Highness's counsel, being of such wisdom and discreet in cases most important, when you shall have heard these questions of religion open faithfully, which many times by our adversaries are huddled up and confounded, will see upon what substantial grounds our Catholic faith is builded, how feeble that side is which by sway of the time prevails against us. And so at last for your own souls and for many thousand souls that depend upon your government will discountenance error when it is revealed and hearken to those who would spend the best blood in their bodies for your salvation. Many innocent hands are lifted up to heaven for you daily by those English students whose posterity shall never die which beyond seas, gathering virtue and sufficient knowledge for the purpose, are determined never to give you over, but either to win you heaven or to die upon your pikes. And touching our society, the Society of Jesus, be it known to you that we have made a league all the Jesuits in the world whose succession and multitude must overreach all the practices of England, cheerfully to carry the cross you shall lay upon us, and never to despair your recovery, while we have a man left to enjoy your tiber, or to be wrapped with your torments, or consumed with your prisons. The expense is reckoned. The enterprise is begun. It is of God. It cannot be withstood. So the faith was planted. So it must be restored. 9. If these my offers be refused, and my endeavours can take no place, and I, having run thousands of miles to do you good, shall be rewarded with rigour, I have no more to say but to recommend your case and mine to Almighty God, the Searcher of hearts, who send us his grace, and set us at accord before the day of judgment, to the end we may at last be friends in heaven, when all injuries shall be forgotten. He gave a copy of that to Thomas Pound. Thomas Pound read it and went, wow! <laughs> so did we his friends, look at this. And everyone started to copy it. 
Within a month it was all over England. <laughs> this secret declaration. <laughs> Copies got to the Privy Council, to the Queen, and they were determined to catch Campion. So Campion became the most hunted man in England. So the Queen actually read that? For sure. I can't, I didn't see her do it, no one records that she did it, but there's no doubt that something that Lord Burley, her chief minister, read definitely would have showed it to her. She may or may not have remembered that this was the man who, you know, years ago had debated before her. She might have remembered it because he was so well known at Oxford. So Camden had departed from London and went north. Went to Oxfordshire, Lancashire and, and other shires north of London. The Jesuits were very satisfied with the fruits of their first expedition. And Campion found that the country people were more inclined to be Catholics than the inhabitants of the towns. Within the towns, there was far more security, there were more spies, there were more people. It was, in a certain sense, easier to keep control of what was going on. Father Parsons wrote a letter saying, I should never come to an end if I begin to talk about the zeal and fervour of the Catholics. When a priest comes to their houses, they first salute him as a stranger unknown to them. And then they take him to an inner chamber where a chapel is set up, where all fall on their knees and humbly beg his blessing. Then they ask how long he will stay with them and pray him to stop as long as he may. If he says he must go on the following day, as he usually does to avoid risk from a longer stay, they all prepare for confession that evening. The next morning they hear Mass and fortify themselves with Holy Communion. Then, after preaching and giving his blessing a second time, the priest departs and is conducted on his journey by one of the young gentlemen. The Catholics in various parts of their houses have a number of secret places in which to hide the priests from the violence of the officials who make sudden raids. But now, owing to their being in use a long time, and also by reason of the treachery of some false brethren, for the most part, they have come to the knowledge of the persuadents. The persuadents were the priest captors, those who were on the pursuit of the priests. So these things became known as priest holes. Some of them were not discovered for one or two or three hundred years later when renovations were being done to houses. They would find behind a wall, a false wall, a big room where priests could lie down and, and wait and even be, uh, even be given food secretly so he could last as long as possible if the house was being searched. Now we don't know the full and exact itineraries of Campion or Parsons around London and, in, and over England. They are not known to us. They wrote letters and reports to Rome, but generally they named no Catholics or no specific residences, and of course it was too dangerous to keep a diary. It was too dangerous to name anyone. People used code names or password or pen names. No doubt when they first met up for the first time, six months or so after party, they would have related all the adventures that they had together. At this meeting, when they first met up, October 1580, it was decided that the time had come for Camping to write a book, to deal with the situation. They discussed what would the book be about. And Camping proposed a book, a little book on the title, Heresy and In Despair. Parsons re replied, Parsons records that everyone laughed, Heresy and Despair. Heresy is running this country, ruling this country, persecuting Catholics. And, and Campion said, even for this cause, it seems this argument most fit at this time, for this manner of their cruel proceeding by terror 
is the greatest argument that may be of their desperation. For if they had any confidence at all in the truth of their cause, they would never proceed in this matter. So this became the keynote of his work, Ten Reasons, De Generationis. He wrote it on the rough. So Camden went north again, Parsons went down to London, the two of them passed. I have to jump ahead now. Autumn 1580, so that's about September, October 1580, Parsons busied himself in carrying out a recommendation which Camden had laid great stress at their meeting, the establishment of a printing press to reply to all the charges and lies of the heretics against him. So two young men, Edward and William Broxby, persuaded their father Robert to give permission for certain gentlemen to lodge at his large unoccupied house called Green Street, which is about seven miles from London. And a man called Stephen Brinkley, a young assistant to Father Parsons, took all the materials for the printing press, something that had to be done with great caution, because no one was allowed to operate a printing press without a royal license. And of course a printing press being set up in a private house was itself a cause for suspicion. So the secrecy of this vital enterprise was absolutely crucial, and not even the owner of the house, Robert Broxby, was informed of what was going on in the house. Not, he didn't live there, but anyway, he, he, did, he was not even told what was going on. Campion went to the north at the end of 1580. He went up in order to go to Lancashire, and he was in Yorkshire in January, February, and March of 1581. And he stopped at a particular house for about 12 days, and at sort, that's probably where he spent much of his time writing this book, on heresy and despair, which afterwards appeared, as I said, Deitchem Rationis, his ten reasons. And at this time, about March or April of 1581, this was probably when he met the 17-year-old future poet and playwright, like himself, William Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare was probably at that time staying at the home of Alexander Holt. So this was most likely where Campion would have met Shakespeare. <coughs> we can only speculate on what passed between them. What is certain is that Shakespeare at this age, 70 years old, knew the reticent families in Lancashire. Reticent meant those Catholics who refused to go to the Protestant church. And in Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, Act 4, Scene 2, there are a number of references to Campion and Parsons, and favourable references. Campion is called, without his name being mentioned, the old hermit of Prague. As we know, he spent a number of years in Prague. And Parsons is referred to as Master Parson. A clear reference to Parsons, the companion of Campion. Father Henry Moore, who wrote a biography of Campion 80 years after Campion, in 1660, says, even up to my time, 80 years after Campion has died, Campion's memory has remained fresh in the law, where they have still remembered his sermons on the Hail Mary, on the Ten Lepers, on the King who went off on a journey, and on the Last Judgment, and many other subjects which people were so greedy of hearing that very many persons of notable families spent whole nights in neighbouring barns, so they might be early at the place next day. Father Moore says they were drawn 
not so much by his eloquent or elocution, although he was admirable in both respects, as by his fire and by a certain hidden force in his way of speaking, which they considered could only flow from the Holy Spirit. One time when he was at the house of a man called Mr. Worthington, a persuader arrived at the house in the hope of catching a priest. So a maidservant quickly, thinking quickly, pushed Cadian into a little puddle and said, get away from me, you naughty man. And so disguised July 1580, Queen Elizabeth issued a royal proclamation calling for the loyalty of all Englishmen and denounced traitors living abroad. In other words, those in Rome and Douai studying for the priesthood. Another proclamation was made in January 1581 for the recall of students from beyond the seas and against the harbouring of Jesuits. So a special law made it illegal to have a Jesuit in your house. Students abroad were given three months to return and their parents were forbidden to send them money. The same year, 1581, another act made it treason to absolve any Englishman of his sins, to convert him to the Catholic religion, to try to persuade him to become a Catholic. It was treason to be absolved by a priest or be converted to the Catholic religion. It became an offence to aid or maintain any persons who had done so, or to conceal any such offence, without divulging it within 20 days to the local magistrate. Another clause under the same act made the saying of mass forbidden under the under penalty of 135 pounds, an enormous fine, plus one year's imprisonment. The hearing of mass was penalised by 65 pounds fine and one year imprisonment. And any person above 16 years of age who did not attend the local Anglican church for one month was fined 20 pounds each month for the next, for the first 12 months. So the fines were so enormous that only the wealthiest of people could afford them. You really had to have an enormous mansion and enormous resources to pay these fines. These fines were like a year's wage per month. Being like, it would, imagine if someone was fined $5,000 a month. You know, not too many people could keep that up for months and months on end. So about March 1581, Cadbury finished his book and sent it to London. Sent it to Parsons. Parsons read it, was delighted with it, but there were so many quotations from Protestant writers in order to attack them, as well as from the fathers of the church, he got nervous. He thought, if a single quotation is inaccurate, or a single reference is inaccurate, they will jump on it and they will attack Campion as a liar, as misrepresenting Protestants, as misrepresenting the fathers. So he said, we must have it checked. So it was entrusted to a young man called Thomas Fitzgerald. He was a young married man. A few years later, after his wife died, he became a Jesuit priest and spent his years in Rome. But this time he was a young married man. He'd already served time in jail for his Catholicism, but at this time he was free, so he went to the libraries of London, and he checked every quotation that Campion had, and he found that it was exceedingly accurate. So, Parsons Printing Press was taken to the home of a lady called Dame Cecily Stoner in Oxfordshire. So it was only about 20 miles from the town of Oxford itself. Dame Cecily Stoner didn't live her there, but her son John Stoner did live there. So Stoner Park was a good place. It was surrounded with woods. It was easy accessible. You could get to it by going up the Thames River on a boat, which was better than any highway. 
So Stephen briefly took the press there. So about March 1581, this book called Ten Reasons was printed. They printed 400 copies, and the press called Father William Hartley went to Oxford on the 27th of June 1581. They were having ceremonies for the commencement of the year and the examinations, and he went to St. Mary's Church, where these ceremonies would be conducted, and he put about 400 copies on the benches, and also he gave some copies to people privately. So next morning when everyone came into the ceremonies, they picked up their piece of paper, they found that there was a book underneath. So while the speeches and the examinations are going off ahead, everyone's reading this 50-page book, Ten Reasons. Some were furious, some were amused, some were exalted, some were frightened, some were perplexed, but everyone agreed that this 50-page work was a model of eloquence, elegance, and good taste. So the full title was Ten Reasons Presented to the Illustrious Men Our Academics on the Basis of Which Edmund Camden, Priest of the Society of the Name of Jesus, Proposed to His Adversaries Disputation in the Name of the Faith. So it's only about 50 small pages, and there are still four original copies in existence in England. So under ten headings, Cameron expounds the falsity of Protestantism and the truth of the Catholic religion. What time must I finish? About ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay, one minute per minute. One, the scriptures. He says all the heretics despair when they read the scriptures, so they pervert it or mutilate it in order to make it mean what they want to say. The second reason, how they elude the meaning of the texts, especially those that tell plainly against them. Three, the nature of the church. He says Protestants have made their church invisible, and being invisible, it is also inaudible. It is incapable of bearing testimony to the truth. Four, the councils of the church. If the English church accepts the four general councils, as he says, they must accept all their doctrines and all the other councils which were held with equal authority, including the Council of Trent. Five, the fathers. He says, those who turn aside from the ancient way are obliged to renounce the fathers. And while they read the fathers, it will be vain for them to profess Protestantism. A Protestant, he says, professing to reference the fathers is like a man holding a wolf by the ears, and therefore not too much to be dreaded as an opponent. Six, the consensus of the fathers in their interpretation of scripture. Seven, the history of the church. And eight, what he calls paradoxes, or you might call absurdities. He collects the most offensive and outrageous sayings of Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin. And the texts were well known. No one could dispute the accuracy. Let's have a little extract. An extract from the eighth reason, the paradoxes or absurdities. Calvin says, I will take care that Protestants know the maxims of their teachers. Calvin, God is the author and cause of evil, willing it, suggesting it, effecting it, commanding it, working it out, and guiding the guilty counsels of the wicked to its end. As the call of Paul, so the adultery of David, and the wickedness of the traitor Judas was God's own work. Says Calvin, this monstrous doctrine of which Philip Melanchthon was for once ashamed, Luther, however, extols as an oracle of heaven with wonderful praises. 
Then he says, there remain the same that the heretics concerning life and morals, the noxious goblets which Luther has vomited on his pages, that out of the filthy hovel of his one breast he might breathe pestilence upon his readers. Listen patiently and blush and pardon me the recital, says Campion. Luther, if your wife will not or cannot, summon the maidservant. That's a quote from Luther's sermon on marriage, by the way. Back to Campion. Do you wish to hear any more? Luther says, the more wicked you are, the nearer you are to grace. Luther, all good actions are sins. In God's judgment, mortal sins. In God's mercy, venial. Luther, no one thinks evil of his own accord. Luther, the Ten Commandments are nothing to Christians. Luther, God cares not at all about our works. Says Campion, I think I've stirred up this puddle sufficiently. I now finish. I am not of consequence enough to claim for myself so much as an undistinguished place among the select theologians who at this day have declared war and heresies. But I know that puny as I am, I run no risk while supported by the grace of Christ. I shall do battle with the aid of heaven and earth against such fabrications as these, so odious, so tasteless, so stupid. <laughs> then towards the end of the word, Campion talks about the kings, princes, emperors, saints, martyrs, Hours they were, hours they were, not of yours. They were not Protestants, they were ours. He says, I call to witness likewise princes, kings, emperors and their commonwealths, whose own piety and the people of their realms and their established discipline in war and peace were altogether founded on this our Catholic doctrine. Hearken, Elizabeth, most powerful queen, for you, the prophet Isaiah, utters his prophecy and therein teaches you your part. I tell you, one and the same heaven cannot hold Calvin and the princes I have named. With these princes then associate yourself and so make you worthy of your ancestors, worthy of your genius, worthy of your excellence in literature, worthy of your praises, worthy of your fortune. To this effect alone do I, harbor, I labor about your person and will labor whatever shall befall me, for whom these adversaries so often augur the gallows as though I were an enemy of your life. Hail, good cross, the day shall come, Elizabeth, the day that will show clearly who has loved you, the society of Jesus or the brood of Luther. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Peter Joseph. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.